there. It's you. I was hoping you would see this. What day? Um, hi, my name is Jonathan Zapp of ZappOracle.com. Welcome to Skills for Rabbit Hole Navigation in an Age of Metamorphosis. Well, it really is you. I'm so glad you're here. I've wanted to tell you these things for a really long time. I know who you are. You are a rabbit hole navigator. That's what we all are. That is a working definition of what a human being is, is a rabbit hole navigator, whether you want to be or not. Okay, now you're gonna see me looking at my phone a little bit, but don't worry, I'm not texting anybody. I've got a kind of map of an outline here. And that's one of the themes of rabbit hole navigation is you want to ride that slippery, unstable, dynamic line between structure and anti-structure. And so this is just a little bit of structure to keep me on track, but we're also very open to the serendipitous, the synchronistic, the spontaneous, and we're willing to go there. But we want to make sure we don't get completely off track too. Okay, so a working definition of a human being is a sentient creature navigating an infinite labyrinth of rabbit holes. And those rabbit holes are roughly two kinds. To paraphrase the immortal words of Donald Rumsfeld, there are the known unknown rabbit holes, the rabbit holes that you know about or that science knows about but that we have yet to fully explore. And then there is the infinitely greater number of unknown unknown rabbit holes, the ones that we don't even know are there yet, but any of us could get sucked into at any moment. I've got a whole bunch of tools of rabbit hole navigation from a long life of strange experiences and paranormal experiences I want to share with you. But um, let, let's ground this a bit because we can't start off with you thinking this is some kind of like fantasy sort of thing. It was originally designed as a talk for people doing esoteric research, but as I've explained, this applies, rabbit hole navigation applies to everybody. And what I'm assuming, my working assumption, is that most of you watching me now, and especially you, are presently, as I am, incarnated as a mammal. So if you're presently incarnated as a mammal, what that means is that probably within the next 24 hours, almost certainly within the next 72 hours, you are going to be sucked down an interdimensional rabbit hole where the rules of physics will change, where space and time will be irrealized, and you will find yourself in an idioplastic matrix. And what's an idioplastic matrix? It's a thought-responsive matrix, which can be very disorienting. Just like the heart has a rhythm, systole and diastole, mammalian incarnation has two phases of being conscious that something is going on called waking and dreaming. The dreaming is the even more rabbit hole like one, which a lot of people neglect. But it is an absolute inevitability that you will spend a significant part of your life in a, a endless series of, of rabbit holes in the dream time. So you are a rabbit hole navigator. So it's really just a matter of, do you wanna be a skillful rabbit hole navigator? Or do you want to, to try and stick your head like an ostrich in some shallow, illusory hole of materialism and pretend that you are not constantly surrounded by rabbit holes? Or would you rather take the red pill, realize how deep and how weird things actually are, and handle your navigation a little bit more skillfully? 
And this is very important because we are living in an age of metamorphosis where this, the metabolism of the species is heating up and things are just getting weirder and weirder. But let's say you are an extroverted materialist. Just recognizing, really recognizing the everyday truths of the scientific consensus that we already know and that the whole patriarchal world agrees on is it itself a completely mind-blowing rabbit hole. If you think about it, relationships for almost all of us are some of the ultimate rabbit holes. Um, you get so emotionally entangled, you can lose your grounding, projection, a lot of the things we're going to talk about. So in a lot of ways, other people are rabbit holes. It's, you know, it, we can't even know all of who we are. That's a rabbit hole. So trying to understand anybody else is one rabbit hole relating to another rabbit hole. But before we um, go any further, I want to uh, just give you an overview. I, I've, I've taken all the skills of rabbit hole navigation and put them into one sentence. And it starts with talking about the path of the numinous. Well, this is my, my basic method of rabbit hole navigation. I call it the path of numinous. It's also an essay and a YouTube you can find on my site. Um, it is a, basically, Newman means spirit. So something is numinous when it lights up with an uncanny significance. So if you, if you find something that, that has that for you, that's numinous, and you follow it down the rabbit hole, that's what we call the path of the numinous. So here's a sentence. Follow the path of the numinous into rabbit holes, aware that you will be surrounded by the carnival funhouse mirrors of your own psyche and of other psyches, of tricksters, be aware of the tricksters, and use your moral grounding. This is crucial. If there's one skill more important than the other, it's moral grounding. Your reality testing, your true skepticism, your phenomenological perspective, imaginal portals, depth psychology, dynamic relation to paradoxes, and worthy allies to stay oriented. So we are going to talk about something called liminality. While we are between and betwixt, while we're moving to another rabbit hole. And liminality is a concept that applies to all rabbit holes. It is when you are between and betwixt, like Schrodinger's cat that may not be alive and it may not be dead. The wave function has yet to collapse. The liminal, during the day, Dawn and dusk are liminal. They're between night and daylight, and that's why they're always seen as powerful times to do spiritual rituals. Um, the time when your mind is drifting into sleep and when you are awakening from sleep, these are called the hypnogogic and hypnopompic states. Try and draw those out. Don't just wake up to an alarm clock and immediately get up. Wake up in a dark room so you can remember your dreams and so you can think about them a little bit and take advantage of those liminal states. Some people live, have a liminal status, a person of uncertain sexual orientation, an undocumented worker, for example, whose immigration status is uncertain, a person in legal jeopardy with a court case yet to be decided, a person in medical jeopardy with an uncertain outcome, these may all seem like undesirable states, 
but they are also very powerfully liminal. And interesting things can happen when things are in such a dynamic and not completely formed state. For this reason, I like airports because they're very liminal, because people are between and betwixt, just like we are right now. So in liminality, and that's basically what rabbit hole is almost always going to be in a liminal state, inner and outer, subject and object, get very confused. And the boundary between them may not be completely formed. Just say a few things about my own personal history of rabbit hole navigation. And just to describe the rabbit hole journey of the last couple of weeks, hours, so I can really only talk about in a very general outline. But basically, my first, my, my first paranormal experience at two and a half was shocking and life-changing and I'm still trying to understand all the implications. And then there were many others. I was 11 and 13 and so forth. But I was also fortunate to grow up in a household with super intellectual parents who had a lot of scientific training and engaged in aggressive Socratic dialogue, challenging everything I said. And so I did learn many critical thinking skills, skills of reality testing and of evaluating the sources of information and realizing that what I experienced could be interpreted in a whole variety of different ways. But another strange aspect of this is that I gave up, I was scheduled to give a talk on rabbit hole navigation um, in Boulder and, um, and then just before, a few days before I gave that talk on December 3rd of 2017, there was a huge shift that happened where I had been working on uh, something, I, a fantasy epic I called Parallel Journeys. It, basically in 1978, when I was just 20 years old in my last year of college, I made a life-changing discovery I called the Singularity Archetype. And that's when I synchronistically met the father of synchronicity, Carl Jung. And I've been working from the discoveries I made when I was 19 and 20 ever since. But I also had this kind of global intuition in the summer of 1978 that the way for me to really go further with the singularity archetype would not be with left brain scholarship, I would do some of that too, but through exploring it through fantasy fiction. But I knew I wasn't ready yet. I kept trying, been trying to write the same fantasy epic since 1978, 40 years now. But the, in 2013, on the autumn equinox, that started a phase of some five years of where I had many, many openings into it, but I kept kind of having to restart as, as new things appear. But then on December 3rd of 2017, there was a real break where I knew I had to stop writing Parallel Journeys, and I immediately got sucked into rabbit holes that I've been writing thousands of pages since then, but it's not anything I can make public. So it's been very humbling because the whole movement in my relationship to rabbit holes has been toward relying more and more on right hemispheric intuition. And that can be humbling because it doesn't always do what might please my ego and help me to um, come up with work that can be published. But I pretty much have to go where the creative muse leads me where are the rabbit holes that pull me in? But the other side of it, the well is never dry. The rabbit holes are always amazing and interesting and seem to be getting at the roots of what I need to get at.
So everybody's rabbit hole journey is unique. I'm just giving you a slight introduction to mine, but I respect that yours is going to function and map out in a very different way. We're here in a mirror world because it's time for us to talk about one of the most crucial tools, which is cartography of the unconscious. Mapping out the unconscious and realizing that it has more layers than many people realize. One of the people who was a great pioneer, but only went, went one layer deep was Sigmund Freud, who um, was interested in the unconscious, but went only into the personal unconscious, and because of his obsession with the sexual theory, um, refused to recognize that there are other layers, and this was a huge part, the hugest part of what caused the split between Freud and Jung. So when we look deeper into the unconscious, we discover what Jung called the collective or objective unconscious um, that connects all of us and who has extremely powerful contents. And what's in the unconscious, um, especially important, are the archetypes. And these are not merely patterns, they're living agencies that can be said to have the entities um, that have their own intentionality and that largely form our psyches. These are things like the hero, the devil, the great mother, the mandala, and so forth. You can see my other video um, looking um, across the event horizon uh, for much more on archetypes. So, <clears throat> What, what can happen to us is if we don't understand archetypes, archetypes inspire, but they can also possess. Every archetype has a light and dark side, including the one that I discovered called the singularity archetype. So for example, there's an archetype called the Uber Eternus, or eternal youth. So if we look at the life of Michael Jackson, for example, we can see that he was inspired by the archetype of eternal youth and it helped him to have incredible imagination and creativity with bands and music, but he was also possessed by it. He identified with Peter Pan, and Peter Pan, by the way, if you read the book carefully, is quite a dark mythology. Peter Pan is the only one who doesn't grow up. The Lost Boys grow up, and then Peter Pan has them murdered. Um, he doesn't want them around anymore. And the life of J.M. Barry turns out to be uh, quite dark. You can read a book uh, called Neverland to find out more about that dark history. But uh, Michael Jackson didn't see the dark side of Peter Pan. Remember, he lived at Neverland Ranch, and he identified with Peter Pan. He also did all kinds of bizarre things, trying to preserve his youth, like sleeping in hyperbaric chambers and having um, an endless series of ever more mutilating plastic surgeries. And uh, perhaps this love of eternal youth also led him to have some inappropriate sleepovers. We're not sure exactly how inappropriate they were, but enough for him to make many multi-million dollar payouts. So this is an example um, that we have to be really careful, and that's why it's really important to learn some depth psychology, to read some stuff about Jung's psych Jungian psychology, like man and his symbols and memories, dreams, reflections, so we understand how archetypes work, because they are so high energy that when people um, encounter them, they often will experience, um, they'll often have the naive delusion that they're the first to have discovered something. It will cause a huge ego inflation and a often a fanatical and messianic um, desire 
and um, to spread the word, to proselytize and so forth, feeling that they have found some unique vision. Um, an example of the singularity archetype causing possession and pathologizing is apocalypticism. Apocalypticism is was around long before Christianity, Judaism, even Zoroastrianism. It may go to the late Paleolithic. And basically, it is an example of how we tend to, especially in liminal, rabbit hole states, confuse inner and outer. Um, you know, something that has a high psychic charge is likely to be projected outward. And so basically, when we, when we um, look at archetypes, or when you are looking, when we are in a rabbit hole, we're always looking through a glass darkly. And often what we see when you look at a dark glass, you may see a reflection of your own psyche, which you confuse with the outside. So something with a high charge in the psyche is anxiety about personal death. People project that outward and they feel like, oh, I think, you know, I can feel it. This could all end at any time. I can see it. The apocalypse is coming. So this has been going on for thousands of years, end date predictions. I don't know of any other enterprise in all of human history, not even diets or romantic relationship, that has a 100% failure rate and yet is still popular, as apocalypticism is. And um, it, it is a confusion of inner and outer, because that inner event horizon of death is easily confused with the outer event horizon of eschaton or an end point of the species. So our next tool is called phenomenology and embracing ambiguity. So phenomenology sounds like a very big word, but basically it's just a Greek word for appearance. So phenomenology means we recognize that what we experience is an appearance, um, but that there may be something behind that appearance. But we're willing to begin by just working with things where they are at on their own terms. Phenomenology um, has roots in German philosophy. Edmund Herschel is sort of the father of phenomenology, but really it goes back earlier to Immanuel Kant. He talked about the phenomenon and the, the noumena. So the noumena would be what's actually behind the curtain, but what we experience is the phenomena. So for example, right now I am looking at the videographers and they seem very solid and very real, but really what's happening is um, the lighting is bouncing off the topography of their hair, their skin, their clothing. And then it's entering my eye, which is a simple convex lens. And an image is appearing upside down on the back of my retina, which is basically just like the, a lot like the sensor in a digital camera. Except that the sensor of the retina um, also has a hole in the middle of it, that's where the optic nerves come in and has no photoreceptors there, but my brain is just going to fill in what it thinks should be there. And it's also going to turn that image right side up. So that takes a significant fraction of a second for it to do all that, and of course it's missing certain wavelengths of light and it's subject to optical illusions. So the phenomenon of what I am seeing with my physical eyes right now is actually 
merely a neurological reconstruction, a simulacrum of a past event, because they're moving through space and it takes a significant, goes through a significant time buffer before all those images can be assembled in my brain. So uh, the noumena is their actuality, but I never really get to fully experience that. Now, when people have an inner experience, a lot of extroverts and materialists think, oh, well, that's just a nothing. If I have you think of a pink elephant, they think, oh, well, that's, that's just something that passed through your mind. Well, no, no. I mean, from a phenomenological point of view, first of all, it is a factual actuality that you thought of a pink elephant in that moment and not anything else. The whole history of the unfolding of the universe must include that fact or it would be incomplete or wrong. So um, inner experiences have a factual actuality in the phenomenological sense and that they are phenomena that actually appear. How we interpret them, that's another story. But what we're discovering from science is that most of the phenomena that we perceive and think we're sure of have a noumena behind them that can be quite different. So because of that, we need to have a certain phenomenological humility to realize, not be too sure that we are perceiving that noumena and understand there is an inherent and often irreducible subjectivity in everything experience, especially if we're looking at ourselves or if we're trying to evaluate other people because one psyche looking at another human psyche or one psyche looking at itself, that is the maximal case of subjectivity. But many scientists, as Jung point out, um, have this naive idea as if their mind were this photographic apparatus just objectively mapping things out, not realizing that there are a thousand subjective factors influencing um, their judgment. <clears throat> so we want to be able to in embrace ambiguity because this is the mark of a mature mind. An immature mind wants to collapse the ambiguity into some black and white ideology where everything is settled. But the cost of that will be losing all our ability to do skillful rabbit hole navigation because some things have meaning that is yet to be determined and are irreducibly ambiguous. Jung said that ambiguity was the way of life. By contrast, George W. Bush said you're either with us or you're against us. And of course, if you want to hear somebody that is completely unambiguous in what they say, though it may often be quite wrong, is Donald Trump. So um, we want to be able to acknowledge um, the ambiguity without trying to engage premature closure and try and clear it all up with some grand theory. So for example, whenever we see an esoteric field like ufology, what I almost always notice is that the most sophisticated observers people in the field of ufology, that would be Jacques Vallée and Whitley Strieber for me, well, they are careful to always refer to the visitors and say we may not be able to know at our present state of consciousness who they are because we don't fully know who we are yet. Whereas the people who know the least, they the ones who can tell you the names of everybody on the Palladian High Council, and they say too much. So when people claim to have too much unambiguous knowledge, that's often the sign that they are a conscious or unconscious trickster or charlatan. And so this is something that can make 
a authentic rabbit hole navigator doing it right less marketable than a charlatan rabbit hole navigator because you can't keep up with the can you top this sexiness of those that are able to forever um, come up with these fantastic assertions you know oh you know about the reptilians well i've been on a reptilian ship and i can tell you the 23 subspecies and so forth and it's the same thing about apocalypticism like we talked about earlier if a date isn't close enough it's not glamorous or sexy enough for example sir isaac newton rather unproductively in my opinion spent a good good part of the latter part of his life not doing science but studying the book of revelation he came up with the end date 2060 don't hear about that much because it's inconveniently far in the future. Nobody wants to wait that long for an apocalypse. However, if we're still around in the year 2050, I bet we'll be see hearing about movies called The Newton Code and it'll, it'll, be, it'll get sexed up. So um, this is something that um, people fall into is the idea that there must be a single correct diagnosis for all situations, that there must be a single correct answer um, and often it may not quite be that way. There's um, a physicist I like, like a lot, Michio Kaku. He's a great um, explainer of science, but he also, and he's a founder of, of, of string theory, but he also believes that one day we will have, according to him, a, a formula, an equation one inch long that will explain everything. I call it Kaku's angry inch. Um, I think he's going to be disappointed. I think it's going to turn out that reality is a whole lot, whole lot less cut and dried than that. And so this is the key thing that we need to respect is the ambiguity. Not to be too sure that we found the noumena and, and to keep experiencing the phenomena in some cases just working with it on its own terms until we can learn more. most important tools of rabbit hole navigation is skepticism. Now that may seem hard to believe coming from somebody like me, but you've got to remember that the people who call themselves skeptics and the whole skeptical movement is actually pseudo-skepticism. Skepticism comes from a Greek word, something like skepsis, it just means investigation. And, this, and skepticism was a school of Greek philosophy. These were Greek philosophers who believed in not arriving at conclusions because they wanted to investigate. And they recognized that once you have a conclusion, it limits your powers of observation and thinking by this huge a priori constraint, something like confirmation bias. You start with a conclusion, and now as you want to observe things that will support your conclusion. So they purposefully did not reach conclusions as compared to the modern so-called skeptic who starts with conclusions and then dismisses stuff that they often know very little about. So be very skeptical about people who claim objectivity, like the philosopher Ayn Rand, who had a whole philosophy called objectivism. But she was like the most subjective and irrational person and it's kind of an amazingly neurotic prima donna who um, violated her own philosophy in her amazingly comically contradictory life story. But we'll talk more about who the skeptics really are 
and uh, who the pseudo-skeptics really are in a moment. So many of the so-called skeptics types are the exact opposite of skeptics. They are true believers in a negative. So for example, you'll hear some of them dismiss without having done any homework. Um, so a whole field like near-death experience, because you know it's science job to investigate the unexplained, not to explain away that which you have not investigated, which they will often do. And they'll say something like, oh, this near-death experience thing, I, I'm a skeptic on that. I think it's just an oxygen-starved brain. Well, as Dr. Raymond Moody pointed out, he was really the founder of the field of near-death experience, not just a psychiatrist, but also a professor of logic and Greek philosophy. This is the opposite of skepticism. They start with a conclusion, don't do any actual investigation, and just dismiss something with an easily debunked theory, like it's an oxygen-starved brain, when any person who has some um, understanding of neurology would tell you an oxygen-starved brain isn't going to store all these incredibly complex memories that people come back with. Whether you think their memories are of something real or not, they've certainly had a real inner experience. An oxygen-starved brain would not be able to have or remember such an experience from what we understand. Okay, so a real skeptic is somebody who is not going to rush to conclusions, but is truly going to keep an open mind. And, um, you know, I, Michael Shermer is one of the leading uh, of the so-called skeptics. And he began a talk that I attended, a public event, by saying, what motivates people to believe these irrational things? And I stopped him at one point and said, like, well, how come you don't talk about your motivations? Because your whole career, your whole social status, your income, your everything, identity, is based on being a skeptic. So you're highly motivated to conserve that point of view. Why do you assume that other people are subject to irrational factors, um, but you aren't? The whole history of the skeptic movement has been full of people motivated by irrational drives and a certain anger at the paranormal, which we'll explain later when we talk about the trickster aspect. So for example, the best known skeptic organization, um, Psycho, um, had a very embarrassing episode in 1975. Um, <clears throat> the philosopher Paul Kurtz produced a manifesto denouncing astrology and 186 scientists signed it. And that generated intense media coverage and served as a springboard to help establish PSYCOP. And um, Kurtz, you know, urged newspapers to put a warning label on their astrology columns saying that, you know, this may be risky to your health. Well, um, <clears throat> and um, he was the editor of a magazine called The Humanist that allowed some scientifically erroneous attacks on astrology to be published. Under pressure to defend his position, Kurtz was challenged to undertake a scientific study to confirm or dispute some astrological findings of Michael um, of Gawkelin. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm pronouncing his name right. And so he and a few colleagues accepted the challenge. And they decided to um, do a study because the astrologer said, well, um, I predict a correlation between where people have Mars in their birth chart and their success at athletics. And so that was something that allowed them to evaluate this statistically. 
Now what happened was, when they crunched all the numbers, it turned out that the research supported astrology and not skepticism. Um, this was embarrassing to Psycop, and they refused to publish the results. But what they did was they had it written into their the constitution of their organization that they would never again engage in research in case the results were uncongenial to their skepticism. So, um, as John Keel put it, and respect to his own paranormal research is, belief is the enemy. Um, and this is coming, by the way, from a, one of the great books I recommend on rabbit hole navigation, Supernatural, by my friend Jeffrey Kreibal and the great Rip Whitley Strieber. And so, to the famous motto of the 1990s hit television series, The X-Files, I want to believe, Keel would, Keel would have responded, don't, because now you're going to have confirmation bias. I remember once I had an all-night talk, the same weekend I met John Major Jenkins and Terrence McKenna. I spent an all-night talking with David Perkins, a pioneer studying cattle mutilations, and I wondered aloud if part of the purpose of the phenomenon was to be like a Zen cone, so puzzling and incomprehensible to any rational, consistent rational theory that, that that in itself was its purpose to blow open um, our minds to that which we are unable to comprehend rationally. So um, be very careful about um, believing synchronicities, for example. Don't overread them. Um, I have a saying that wherever you cast your obsessive attention, there shall you find weird patterning. So the most important thing to be skeptical of is your own mind and your own conclusions, but I also um, invite you and even insist that you be skeptical about everything that I'm saying. See air quotes around everything that I say. I was brought up as a rhetorical style to speak in a convincing way, but, that, but you should, um, uh, but if it weren't so redundant, I would probably start every single sentence with the phrase, it seems as if. and yet affect somebody of high status, just as Rasputin had paranormal abilities that may have helped to bring down the Tsar and the whole Russian royal family. The trickster archetype governing the paranormal means that charlatans and authentic experiencers may often be the same person, and that they've shown that even attempts to fake Psy may bring on the real ability 
and the real ability may get somebody attention and then they may become a charlatan because they can't do it on demand. So um, the charlatan and the trickster can both kind of cross over, um, the, the charlatan and the authentic um, become very blurred with, um, with the trickster aspect of this. And that was also true for shamans. Anthropologists observed that shamans were often tricksters and when they couldn't always pull something off, they weren't um, afraid to fake it. Okay, and so what Hansen points out is that this anti-structural aspect of the paranormal, blurring the lines between imagination and reality, means that complex or highly structured social entities, the more organized a social entity is, the more anti-paranormal it will be. So where do we find the greatest friendliness toward the paranormal? is a hunter-gatherer tribe that is not very highly organized. They will institutionalize the paranormal with the shaman. But when we get to very organized social structures, like say the Catholic Church or the edifice of science, they will become aggressively anti-paranormal. So one of the ironic things is that the Catholic Church a, a based on a religion that has talking snakes and Jonah and the whale and like one paranormal thing after another because it is now a rigidified and highly structured social organization has become anti-paranormal for example a 1994 catechism of the Catholic Church shows this clearly it acknowledges that God can reveal the future to his prophets or to other saints but in the very next paragraph, it states that interpretation of omens, read synchronicities, and locks, the phenomenon of clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums, contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. So um, don't dare have any new such experiences, even though the Bible is full of them, because that's disrespecting and not fearful enough of the structure we have already um, created. And then the next paragraph says, all practices of magic or sorcery by, one by which one attempts to attain occult powers, even as if this were the sake of, even if this were for the sake of restoring health, are gravely contradictory to the virtue of religion. Well, obviously the virtue of religion for them is its stability and rigidity. I remember even in the very liberal reform Judaism that I was brought up in, it was very intellectual and they took out male references to God and all that kind of stuff. But um, I remember in Sunday school, they said where I felt myself turn against its approach when they said the age of miracles is over. Well, I had already experienced had my own paranormal experience. I, why should there be an expiration date on miracles? It doesn't say that in the Bible anywhere, does it? Because they wanted the irrational, miraculous stuff comfortably in the past where it be contained. Otherwise, we would have to be writing new books of the Bible and have new prophecies and so forth. And they didn't want that. They wanted it to be much more tame and intellectualized and rationalized. So um, where we find the greatest antipathy to the paranormal is in science, which is an extremely organized social structure. There's no reason why this is a phenomenon that cannot be the subject of science. And in fact, there are scientists uh, like 
Garrett Modell, who I met, uh, we're both part of a Boulder Society for Scientific Exploration. And um, he is doing, uh, he's a physicist and engineer at Colorado University, he does impeccably scientific, not just double blind, but triple blind um, studies where there are no human participants at all. So, um, but it's also been established by sociologist James McLennan, um, who surveyed scientists' opinions of psychic phenomena, and what he was able to show was a powerful correlation. The higher status the scientist had, the more anti-paranormal they were, and often this anti-aspect um, you can see is highly emotional. It's an antipathy, it's scientism. It's an irrational belief that certain things should not be possible because they agitate um, the scientist in irrational ways. Like, for example, the fact that there are irreducible um, effects of psychic intention can throw off the legitimacy of empirical results because it's very hard, even with double-blind methodology, to completely eliminate effects like that. So in the rabbit holes, we will inevitably find tricksters. And some of those tricksters may have a real connection to the paranormal and yet be charlatans as well. In fact, charisma is a borderline paranormal phenomenon that is often possessed by tricksters um, who may have some kind of blurred relationship to the paranormal. And a lot of people relate to this kind of charisma in a very naive way. When I first gave this talk, um, I mentioned a woman, she actually turned out to be in the audience, um, who, whose husband gave a talk about these starseed people um, he had met, and this woman who was supposed to be a, an alien hybrid, and who told him all these amazing, bizarre things. And I'm like, well, she told you all that, but did she present any corroborating evidence? And he was like, no, I, I, just, I, just, I just felt it. I just felt it. And then um, um, this woman um, sitting behind me said, well, I met her. And when I just looked in her eyes, I knew. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's good enough. The fact that you had a charismatic experience with somebody, or even if they had genuine paranormal charisma, does not mean that what they tell you is true. Charisma and veracity are very different things, and many lying politicians may be quite charismatic. So there are a lot of trickster-like aspects and blind spots that we need to be aware of them, aware of. And one of the very important ones, I'm not a big Ken Wilber fan, but he came up with a very interesting way of understanding a huge blind spot in his pre-trans fallacy. The pre-trans fallacy is a tendency people have to confuse that which is pre-rational or pre-conventional with that which is trans-rational and trans-conventional and transcendent. So there are two versions of the pre-trans fallacy. There is the reductivist version. This is what the skeptics and the scientism types do. They will take an authentically transcendent experience and say, oh, it's just an oxygen-starved brain. It's just superstitious nonsense. It's just an infantile state of confusion. But the other um, form of the pre-trans fallacy that we see more often, especially in New Age circles and, and so forth, is um, <clears throat> the 
uh, elevationist version, where anything that is pre-conventional or pre-rational is thought to transcend the conventional. So babies are thought to be Buddhas, and anything Aboriginal, Native American, whatever, is thought to be infinitely more advanced than anything that Western civilization could possibly do. So, um, <clears throat> you know, examples of this are that you will find certain um, New Age people, for example, who will demonize rationality and, and claim that they have transcended reason, forgetting that when you transcend something, it includes that which is transcended. So you can't transcend something unless you have had it first. And many of them have not had rigorous rationality to be able to have transcended it. Um, so, for example, and, and this kind of person can be just um, fiercely anti-intellectual. So, for example, a few years ago, I had a number of different intelligent people send me the same chain email that was from some channeled entity called Raphael Blue or something like that, who claimed that a ultraviolet pulse beam from Universe 2 was going to be hitting the Earth at a particular date, at a particular time, and immediately everybody would be one million times more conscious. This was like in 2006 or something like that. And um, when finally I got still another copy of that email from a very well-educated woman who was a writer, I thought, let me, I, I tried to gently reason with her. And I'm like, okay, well, it says in the email that this event is going to happen at seven o'clock regardless of time zone. So um, this seems like an unusual type of pulsed ultraviolet ray that is able to stop at time zones, which are an artificial human construct, wait an hour <laughs> so that it, it can be at the same clock time in every part of the world. How does that work? Well, his, her response to this rational inquiry was a one-line response, okay, stay there. In other words, if I was such a rational stick in the mud, you know, um, thinking function, stuck in their head, thinking function person, then I was too clueless to ever get anywhere. Now, meanwhile, and I face this often at places like the Society for Scientific Exploration or Boulder Exo or other venues where they bring in people talking about paranormal subjects, I'm often known as the, the tough-nosed curmudgeon that asks these difficult questions, even though I'm not, there are all these scientists there and I'm an English major, but um, I, I have daily paranormal experience. It's not because I'm a rationalist that doesn't have any contact with this phenomenon. It just, I see no reason to abandon my mind at the door, which a lot of people are willing to do. And once you abandon rational discernment, you end up deceiving yourself and others. And a lot of people have these um, illogical um, ways of conserving their belief system no matter what. Like recently on uh, I heard an interview with a woman who was part of the whole Edgar Casey Ring of Fire thing going on in the late 90s, where they took Edgar Casey's prophecy about earth changes and we'd be enveloped in this ring of fire. And at, long after the event was disconfirmed, they asked her about what she felt about all that. And what she said was, well, I really have to believe that all the awareness that we brought to the subject and all the intention we brought to it change something so it didn't have to happen. Okay, so notice 
how that works. Heads I win, tails you lose. If it happens, that confirms it. If it doesn't happen, it confirms this. So you'll see this with a lot of conspiracy thinking. By the way, obviously there are conspiracies and false flags, but there are also a lot of problems with the way a lot of conspiratists think. I have a very a YouTube called Problems with the Conspiratist Worldview, and they also fall into this heads I win, tails you lose kind of thing. If something happens that seems to support their theory overtly, then they're like, you see? But if just the opposite happens, they're like, oh, well, <laughs> they, they did that because they want you to think the opposite so you don't, don't see what's really going on. So no matter which way things break, it still conserves the theory. This is why um, my late colleague Terrence McKenna called a lot of these conspiracy theories epistemological cartoons. They are often based on really obvious premises that are really obviously not in accord with what's going on in the phenomenal, phenomenal world. So for example, so many elaborate conspiracies with Illuminati or some like one all-powerful group of puppet masters don't seem to notice the really obvious fact that we live in a world of competing spheres of power. So that Google and Apple and Samsung are competitors and the agenda of Russia is not the same as the agenda of England and so on and so forth, but somehow they will claim that there's one group of puppet masters behind the whole thing. A, a key sign that somebody has become a completely misinformed, self-deceived trickster is when you hear the phrase, wake up. Like Alex Jones, even before he went into his even more crazy rodeo clown version of the present day, was always saying things, because I've been listening to him without believing him for a very long time, and he'd say stuff like in 1998, wake up, sheeple. There's not gonna be a 2008 election because Bush signed the blah, 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 blah. And the FEMA camps are ready to go. The Amera is ready to go. There's not gonna be an election. And so forth. And his followers, of course, don't notice that all his predictions are disconfirmed. But when somebody says, wake up, wake up, sheeple, the assumption is that they're awake based on no evidence. So when people say wake up, it means they probably don't know their own shadow and their own being asleep at the wheel. Okay, um, so just as a, you know, an ex-school teacher coming from a whole family of educators, um, all those things we tried to teach about critical thinking and evaluating sources of information seem to be falling by the wayside in our post-factual age. And um, this is extremely dangerous. We have a lot of people who are mythological literalists um, um, like the self-appointed investigative mythologist William Henry, met him in person, was on his show and he told me like, nobody cares about this old Jungian claptrap. Well, he doesn't care about it because he wants to take mythologies literally and see everything as evidence of a stargate. So some of these folks will take what um, Arthur C. Clarke said that any extremely advanced technology will seem like magic and find evidence of magic in everything in mythology that they can't, they can't understand and would prefer to take literally. And so this, then we get um, you know, so much of the ancient astronaut stuff. I mean, and just to give you an idea how silly some of it gets, I know when I was a child, I was very influenced by 
um, Eric Von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods. I thought it was amazing until I read one of the sequels, Gold of the Gods, where Von Donneken um, finds a, 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 talks about a cave where they found this perfect crystal skull. And he asks with perfect credulity, and how could this ancient people have known exactly what a human skull looked like when x-rays hadn't been invented for a thousand years? Called skeletons, okay? So um, these are often people with very um, poor reality testing. Um, another uh, version of this is New Age people who want to use quantum mechanics as an endless supply of fairy dust um, to justify any proposition, though um, I sometimes talk about it a bit too, but I recognize that I don't really understand it. It speaks the language of mathematics, not English. So they will take the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and misapply it to be like everything's uncertain, by which they mean everything goes. Another place where you see this lack of reality testing is there are people who hear an English explanation of a big toe, a theory of everything, and because it sounds cool, they just accept it. So, um, you know, I have a friend who, who will give talks on, um, and he knows what he's talking about, but he'll give talks on Nassim Haraman, a um, unconventional physicist with a theory of everything at festivals, and um, people will go to one of the talks and completely believe the whole thing um, and believe, you know, it's, it sounds really cool. There's a black hole in the center of every subatomic particle. How do they know that's true based on a talk in English? Because, you know, if you listen to other people who have theories of everything, they say totally different things and they know more science, all of them know more science than I do and they're all totally convincing. So, for example, I heard Linda Moulton Howe interview Thomas Campbell, who's got an amazing theory of everything. He wrote a big call, book called My Big Toe. And, you know, he sounds like he's got an answer for everything. And then she asks, she says to him something like, well, this really intersects really well with Michael Talbot's holographic universe, yet another theory of everything. And then Thomas Campbell says, oh, well, that's totally wrong. The universe is not holographic. That, there's no reason for that. That wouldn't work at all. So all these theories of everything will sound great to a layman like me, but that doesn't mean that they're true. So another big blind spot that empowers tricksters is what we call the halo effect. The halo effect is where um, a first impression of something good about someone makes other things about them seem like they must also be good. So for example, somebody's very good looking and we think maybe they're smart too. Um, for example, one of the best looking groups of people in the world after supermodels and models are pharmaceutical sales reps because there's a lot of money at stake and so they know they will always send the doctor a they'll figure out his gender or her gender preference and they will send a good-looking sales rep to match because somehow their rep even though they are not themselves trained in medicine or pharmaceuticals or pharmacology um, it will be more convincing based on that halo effect and so um, uh, tricksters can be possessed with intense charisma and so one thing you want to be watch out for is um, people who claim to be elders of an aboriginal culture, people who claim that their info is coming from ancient sources. Why does the antiquity of the source make it more valid? Um, people who have special inside sources like David Wilcox, who went through this whole thing a few years ago about Obama is definitely giving a 
news conference will be standing between two aliens. My inside sources and both the CIA and the Illuminati tell me this. And of course, when it didn't happen, then his inside sources told him, and therefore us, the real scoop of why it didn't happen. So um, you, you get these people, um, you know, you'll uh, hear about this famous channeler, and um, I'll hear them talk about their life story. It sounds really authentic. Maybe they really had authentic experiences. But then there'll be the open lines part of the show, and the, the people will call up asking for messages, and then it's the worst kind of cold reading you've ever heard. I see an old man with a watch. Okay, everybody's father or grandfather had a watch, and I mean, and it will just be this kind of terrible. I mean, I feel like I could do a better cold reading than they could. So special names and titles and lineages. For example, Hopi Elder. Um, there are a lot of New Age people who, you know, they hear. Hopi elder and they're ready to like genuflect and like, you know, um, but the Hopi elders asked to speak in front of the UN in the 1980s because they had seen signs that the world was going to end in the 1980s. And then Hopi elders um, uh, came on. It was very dramatic on Coast to Coast AM, the show I've been on several times with Art Bell, June 16th, 1998, and spoke through translators and they had seen the signs and they but it was supposed to happen in 2000. So like everybody with um, end of time prophecies, again, the only human enterprise with 100% failure rate, um, Hopi elders are no better than evangelicals or anybody else at predicting the end of the world, it seems. So um, people think that because somebody is culturally authentic that they have more credibility. But my friend John Major Jenkins, who wrote many, many books about the Maya, and is the one uh, most uh, um, rigorous person on the whole meaning of the 2012 date. And his book, um, The 2012 Story, uh, talks about a Mayan teacher named Carlos Barrios, who spoke scornfully of anthropologists and other people who write about prophecy in the name of the Maya. And you can see somebody saying that. It seems like a, a culture vulture thing that here are all these Caucasian modern writers writing about it. And here's something he said in an interview. Anthropologists visit the temple sites, Mr. Barrios says, and read the steles and inscriptions and make up stories about the Maya, but they do not read the signs correctly. It's just their imagination. And, um, and then he writes, many outside people writing about the Maya calendar sensationalize this date, but they do not know. The ones who know are the indigenous elders who are entrusted with keeping the tradition. Okay, but then when you read his book, what you find is that he completely plagiarizes my friend John Major Jenkins' galactic alignment theory, even like um, many cases like lifting whole phrases and sentences. And so it's not from the uh, Mayan elders, it's actually from this modern Caucasian author. And so um, scholar Robert um, Sittler, who investigated the 2012 phenomenon, also ran to the elder fallacy upon interviewing modern Maya spokespeople such as Don Alejandro, he, he found that whenever they said anything about 2012, it could be traced to modern authors such as Jose Agueras. Because the ancient Maya, you people talk about the Mayan end date, Mayan prophecy. There was no Mayan prophecy we've ever found about it. There are two mentions, on two times it appears in two steles, but it's all inference. And the, there was no, never an end date. The Mayan calendar, like an odometer, just rolls over like all calendars, it's perpetual. But people just kept saying this kind of thing. So this is, and you can read my document or see the YouTube 
Carnival 2012, a psychological study of the 2012 phenomenon. So be wary of culturally exotic gurus who emphasize vertical transcendence, like Buddhists. Many of them have a horrible reputation of coming to the West and turning into horribly abusive gurus. Um, one of them came to Boulder, Colorado. He was a spiritual genius. He was a Rinpoche, Chaim Trungpa. He was also an alcoholic and a womanizer who, if he did the things he did then, now would have gone to jail. Um, but he, they have these sophisticated rationalizations like the crazy wisdom path. Chaim Trungpa said, but this craziness is not so neurotic. It's just basic craziness, which is fearlessness and not giving up anything like his alcoholism, I guess. Not giving up anything is the basic point. At the same time, you are willing to work with what is there on the basis of its primordial, wakeful quality. So that is the definition of crazy wisdom, which is sometimes known as wisdom gone wild. Doesn't make much sense to me. Sophisticated, spiritual-sounding rationalization. The man drank, drank himself to death at age 48. Um, and was a horrible womanizer, and his chosen successor slept with many disciples, giving them AIDS, one of whom died. Okay, so um, this is something that you find, um, you have to be wary of gurus and spiritual teachers displaying the classic red flag trio, sex, money, power abuse. And the most classic red flag for you to notice in somebody else, or it could be in yourself, if you're becoming archetype possessed, remember how that can produce this messianic fervor, belief you've been chosen for a special destiny, is if you or a purported guide who believes that their esoteric research, spiritual or paranormal experiences, visions, discoveries, have imbued them with some special power such that sex with them is an evolutionary catalyst or privileged spiritual initiation one of the most classic of the red flags. So once you get addicted to the excitement, attention, adulation, and income from esoteric work and many other forms of work, you're in danger of crossing every ethical line to keep the goodies going. So when and people start going charlatan, they notice they're in competition with other charlatans who might make even more extraordinary claims. So there would tend to be this can you top this embellishment thing going on. Um, ufologists who have been claiming for the last 30 years, disclosure is just around the corner. I've called some of this and this. Um, people like Jose Aguares, uh, you know, um, who predicted the special date of August 16, 1987, the harmonic convergence that so many people believed in, when the modern nightmare of hellish materialism is supposed to end, and so forth. Um, so you want to avoid any esoteric product or person that depend, that's selling a big drama event up ahead or has a dietary scheme or a spiritual formula or technology that sounds too good to be true and that is an all-powerful success formula that will explain and heal and take care of everything. I'm so glad you're still here because this might be, in fact, I'll have to go out on a limb and say I think it is the single most important tool, even though I won't have that much to say about it because it should be and hopefully is self-evident. And that is your moral grounding. Carl Jung 
went further into the unconscious than anybody in a very rigorous way stated again and again that it was extremely dangerous and foolish to enter the unconscious, to enter rabbit holes without a strong moral stance. There are a lot of postmodernist psychedelic thrill seekers who want to go into the unconscious um, just to stir things up or to make um, unworthy aims happen. And these are the folks that are likely to never come out in one piece and to get permafried. Okay, the moral stance is an irreducible necessity. We talked about how um, there, are, there, there are a lot of toxic gurus and charismatic people with paranormal abilities who become big sex abusers and, and so forth. Um, as George Hansen points out in The Trickster and the Paranormal, it also turns out this is true for people in the skeptic community. A lot of them turn out also like James Randi and there have been some other sex scandals with a number of the very prominent figures. Um, it turns out a lot of them are very sexually transgressive and what, what I mean by sexually transgressive is not in this context that they have unusual sexualities, which a lot of them do, but specifically where they cross common sense moral guidelines that seem like universal ethics, like not obeying consent um, and taking advantage of people who are too young, intoxicated or brainwashed by the guru to be able to make really informed consent. So it's extremely important before we even consider going into a rabbit hole to have some kind of moral purpose. And those moral purposes, you know, people in the 60s would talk about going out to discover the meaning of life. I don't, I don't think that that is a particularly well-guarded secret. If you, if you listen to what people who have had transcendent experiences and especially near-death experiencers, you can uh, find out um, on a document on podcast, YouTube on my website called Life Lessons from the Living Dead, about what, uh, largely about what near-death experiencers say about the meaning of life. Mostly they come back with the same recognitions that, that things they thought were big, like getting a college diploma or a big uh, job promotion, turn out to not be so important. And things that they thought were relatively unimportant turn out to have be usually important events with huge butterfly effects. How they treated well or not so well a store clerk in a, in a one-minute conversation, for example. So treating people well, the, the big purpose in life seems to be to grow, to develop yourself, to explore, to become more conscious. And then the other great and related purpose is to help other people, especially with that, but to help them with anything. So if you don't have a moral purpose to rabbit hole navigation, be better off and a lot of other people around you be better off not to go into them at all. Another key tool um, for rabbit hole navigation is a philosophy that I developed. Again, it's a free YouTube or document on the site called Dynamic Paradoxicalism. The anti-ism ism. So the idea of dynamic paradoxicalism is that the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. And the dynamic paradoxicalist has a dynamic or sliding relationship between those poles of the paradox based on a case-specific context. So for example, and, and therefore avoids absolutisms. Though 
is not even absolute in the avoidance of absolutisms and extremes because there are times when you may want to side with one absolute or another at a, in a particular context, but you don't want to get stuck in that position, which would make you an ideologically rigid absolutist. So for example, in the New Age, I've run across people, this is actually what inspired the whole philosophy. I was traveling with a, a young friend who was very talented, but he was such an absolutist based on things that channeled entities had told him in believing in you create your own reality, that his plan for gaining financial independence was that he was going to manifest money directly into his checking account. A deposit wouldn't even have to be made. So um, you create your own reality um, is a paradox pair, this kind of paradox is called a diethylism or something like that, but there's an opposite. The opposite principle is outside reality creates you. And in some cases, one side of that paradox pair will apply and be very useful, and in other cases, the other will be much more useful and appropriate. So, um, for example, if I'm going to a party with some people that um, I know slightly, and it's a small group of people, and I think that they're going to really like me, or I think they're really not going to like me, I probably will create my own reality, a self-fulfilling prophecy, because I am based, that's going to change how I act, and I'm, I'm, try, I'm going to affect a very small and dynamic group of people, system, a group of people, and those are members of my species, so they're very tuned in to me, and it's a small enough system that um, my um, expectations are likely to influence that. On the other hand, if I was a Jew in Warsaw, Poland, when the Nazis were rolling into town with their tanks, you create your own reality, absolutism would say, just focus on how well you're be, be treated by the Nazis. But that may not work so well because there is a whole lot more temporal momentum behind this whole group of people, uh, much more numerous, that have a very rigid ideology, and I would just be much better off getting out of Dodge, or in this case, Warsaw. So in other cases, outside reality creates you. Uh, like, for example, I'm speaking in English, and I think in English. Pretty sure English existed before I was born. So that's an example of outside reality creating me, because since I think in English, it affects my sense of subject and object and time and all these sorts of things. So um, we want to avoid people who, um, like, for example, John Kelly, the channeler of Chief Joseph, who picked up, like many cha channeled entities, after Jane Roberts channeled South, who said, you create your own reality. Chief Joseph writes, the idea intrigued me, so I kept studying and reading everything I could get my hands on. Finally, it made sense. I accepted we are totally responsible for whatever manifests in our lives, all of it. Um, it's either that or we're victims. I never liked being a victim. So in other words, his thinking is, it's either one absolute or another, I prefer this absolute, therefore it applies in all cases. But it never stops to reality test this and realize that like, how come some sufficiently positive thinking new ager who believes this and doesn't like environmental destruction doesn't reverse climate change? You know, um, everyone is responsible for what happens to them. Do you want to be the one to explain that to a baby dying of AIDS? Are you really that confident that it applies in every single case and that there isn't an opposite principle at work? So, um, for example, all these different tools
have an opposite tool that may be effective, more effective in a given context. So we have the phenomenological approach where you're questioning what's really behind what I'm experiencing. The opposite of that would be the completely superficial, literal, materialist point of view. And sometimes that's more relevant. If I'm in a lucid dream, phenomenological approach is better. If I'm doing my taxes, I don't want to pick up every a W-2 and be like, I think I'm experiencing a W-2, but is it really? No, I just want to get on with it. I'm just going to accept that it is what it appears to be and just work my way through it and um, assume that it is literal and as material as it seems to be. So dynamic paradoxicalism, and once again, that's a document and a, a YouTube, um, is an extremely valuable tool. So um, another thing that is extremely valuable, and this relates to the moral stance thing, is having spiritual allies. People that you respect, now sometimes they can be non-living persons like Carl Jung was for me, but it's really important that there be some living spiritual allies for you who can call you on your shit and be like, you know, hey, you're getting too lost in this, or you're starting to project, or you're starting to um, get inflated. And this is, is really important because, as it says in the I Ching, there's always something ponderous and one-sided about the learning of the completely self-taught. So um, that's another really um, important skill. And as we move um, toward our conclusion here, um, let's also talk about another fact that some people are going to find a little bit disturbing, and that is that even when we're having a very inward rabbit hole experience, we are not necessarily alone in our minds. You remember um, how upset Leonardo got when I pointed out that he was missing a whole dimension of life. It wasn't just him, it was every culture that missed the microbiological plane. But we live in a culture that is the only human culture that is missing another whole dimension of life that every other culture has recognized, and that is the dimension of spiritual life, energetic life, things that, that are not so easy to see with our physical senses, but that are reported in every culture. And whenever a culture denies a whole vast body of human testimony, like we once did with child abuse, it's in trouble. Now, it doesn't mean that, that um, we have to um, agree with all the testimony in the way that the experiencers interpreted their own experience. We shouldn't. A lot of the times it's wrong. It also doesn't mean that we should go crazy in the other direction like happened um, with um, child abuse where we didn't recognize it, we denied it, and then suddenly people were seeing it in too many places where it wasn't. There was a best-selling book on child abuse that had lists of symptoms of how you can tell you were abused. If you can remember it, if you can't remember it, if you experience anxiety, depression, you know, it, the list was a, a list of symptoms that would include everybody in the whole population. So we, we don't want to go overboard in the other direction as well. But um, I, I began to realize that uh, dark entities, for example, reported in all different cultures might really be a thing with my uh, 40 years of work with dream interpretation where people would report these spectral attacks that are so highly stereotyped that seem to have no psychological content and that seem identical across time, place, and um, all kinds of different cultures. 
So basically, wherever we find a dimension of life, like we found in the macrobiological dimension and the microbiological dimension, we find certain classic relationships of energetic transaction, um, chiefly predation, predators and prey, symbiosis, my favorite, and parasitism. And parasites, according to National Geographic, outnumber all the species three or four to one. And most, most organisms have parasites. Most parasites themselves have parasites. Malaria is a microbial parasite inside the mosquito. So what all cultures report, except scientific materialism, is energetic parasites. Um, the Christians call them the incubi and the succubi. The um, Buddhists call them the hungry ghosts of the pretas. Um, in Ayurveda, the traditional medicine of India, the effect of spiritual entities on human health was a medical subspecialty as uh, reputable as gynecology. In Chinese medicine, all, well, all those many acupuncture points, something like 38, begin with quay, a prefix that means disincarnate spirit. They're thought to be points of energy where spirits can feed. I'm not going to go into too much into this now, but it's just something to be aware of. And I have a whole section on my website. There's a navigator bar there. You hit the category menu, you'll see a category called mind parasites. Many documents and YouTubes in there. Start with the one, mind parasites, energy parasites, and vampires. So this aspect of rabbit hole navigation really deserves to be a 10,000 page book. And since I probably won't get around to writing that, and I'm just too immersed in it myself, let me just tell you a little bit about it. To really be a rabbit hole navigator, an empowered rabbit hole navigator is also a sub-creator of rabbit holes. You can call this active imagination. It has a connection to chaos magic, something I was doing before I ever heard the term. That's where you just create magic without regard to a tradition, but spontaneously creating your own rituals, which is much more intentional. And remember Crowley's definition of magic. The science and art of creating change in conformity to will. Well, one of the places where we can create change in conformity to will the most powerfully is in the imaginal realm, especially if we are doing active imagination, where we're not just passively imagining things, but we are creating stable, um, high-definition images, scenes, people, characters, in the imaginal realm. And one of the things to be careful about, though, is that this can, for better or worse, create powerful crossover effects. You need to understand that thoughts are things. They have a factual existence. And when we start to actively create our own rabbit holes, we are tapping into the source code of the matrix. Just to give you an example of how powerful this can be, let's talk about some crossover effects. Some of them are a little bit dark. For example, Edgar Allan Poe um, wrote a story in which there were three sailors and a cabin boy lost at sea. The cabin boy's name was Richard Parker. They end up cannibalizing the cabin boy. Um, in 1978, a, um, uh, Arthur Kessler judged as the most uh, interesting synchronicity of all time a story of a shipwreck in which there was three sailors and a cabin boy who escaped a small, in a small boat 
and the boy is killed and eaten. His name also Richard Parker. Okay, um, I've written something, it's also YouTube, called The Batman Shooting and Crossover Effects. James Holmes was the shooter in 2012 on the opening night of The Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Colorado, not far from where I live in Boulder. Killed 12 people and injured 70 others. He came to the movie dressed up as the Joker, the archetype of the trickster. What he could not have anticipated, no one could have, was that on the opening night, Warner Brothers had a trailer for another movie that appeared before The Dark Knight Rises and before he shot up those people. It was a trailer for the movie Gangsterland, where we see gangsters with Tommy guns standing behind a movie screen and firing into the audience. It's almost the perfect emblem of the crossover effect. And it's happened in many different movies and in many different situations. For example, um, in a more positive way, or at least a less harmful one, because again, that moral stance is important, I was attracted to this gold signet ring I found in an antique store in, in Boulder. When I got it, I found it had an, inscrip an inscription on the back, Ulrich, 626-67. Well, that was so specific, I decided I couldn't just have it on there as a random artifact, so I decided to create a mythology behind it. And so just privately, not sharing it with anybody, I created a mythology where there was a character, Hans Ulrich. It's kind of a time traveler. There were two versions of him. One was in 1967, one was in 1667. Well, the next morning, I get an unexpected email from my web webmaster, Tanner Gary. Um, he doesn't usually send me inks, links to articles, but this time he did. It was an article written by a German guy, a Dr. Hans Ulrich, same name, who has an unusual historical theory. He believes that there are 300 years missing from European history because of a defect in the Gregorian calendar. 300 years missing. 300 year gap, 1667, 1967. So, the other side of being a rabbit hole navigator is that it's not just a passive thing. You're not just reacting to rabbit holes. You are also generating rabbit holes and you need to generate them. But do it in an ethical way and use your power to function as a creator in an idioplastic matrix. This is going to help you when you're in the dream time, when you're in the afterlife realm, where your thoughts become reality. If you learn to do that with full awareness and loving creativity, that's going to make you an empowered magician as well as a navigator of rabbit holes. So before we go, I also want to thank all the people that have helped to make this possible, especially Jake Eckstein, our videographer, our sound man, G.I. Joe, Jared, who is doing lighting, and TJ, who's facilitating with everything else. I also want to thank um, John um, of Meow Wolf for helping to bring, invite us here into this amazing place. And, um, but you know, I'm, I'm gonna head out. I'm putting on my, my tool belt of uh, tools of rabbit hole navigation, and I'm gonna head out there very soon. But let me just say, we are all on an amazing journey from birth to the great event horizon popularly known as death. And then 
after we cross that event horizon, I think the rabbit holes get only that much deeper and more intriguing. There's a great series of books by Stephen King called the Dark Tower Books. There's a character, he's a 12-year-old boy named Jake Chambers, who's kind of caught between dimensions. And just as he is about to fall into an abyss, he says, go then, there are other worlds than these.